Oh man, I just love it out here on this uh, fishing boat. Hey buddy boy, throw me that anchor so we can uh, put the boat right here. Uh, this is going to be a good spot for us to do some fishing. Yeehaw! Hey, speaking of anchors, by the way, if you guys want to make an amazing podcast, all you got to do is download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Yeehaw! Hey, buddy, give me a beer so I can drink this. With a, ho, 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 this is some good stuff here. Yeehaw! Pitching Popcorn with Brent Torrey, and today we have a special guest. He's been in the movie business, the TV business, and he's going to be sharing his stories with us, and he's going to tell us about one of his favorite classic movies of all time. Get ready, get set, get that popcorn, get the butter, get the chocolate, get the caramel. Let's do it. Bada-bing, bada-boom. Hello, and welcome to another amazing episode of Pitching Popcorn with Brent and Tori, and today we have got a special guest for everyone, for all of you listeners out there. We've got a gentleman by the name of Joe Cleary, and he, he's actually, uh, he's been my mentor uh, here at our place of business, and, uh, and we, really, uh, we really got along really well because we have similar backgrounds. Um, to my knowledge, he has a degree in theater, and uh, and he's been in movies and television. And uh, first thing we want to do today, folks, is uh, introduce Joe to everyone out there in podcast land. And Joe, if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit about your history in the business and uh, and what got you interested and in, and in, in your love for it? Tori and Brent, I just want to start off. Thank you guys for having me on today. I've uh, been looking forward to this. Listen to you guys uh Yesterday, just to kind of catch up, I was listening to you guys' favorite movies. Uh, I know your favorite Cinderella Man, Brent. I heard you talk a little bit about uh, how Blues Brothers, you're one of your favorites. That's a top 10 for me personally. Maybe not my personal favorite, but it's a top 10. <laughs> but um, thank you guys for having me here. Uh, so, yeah, I'll, I'll give you guys a quick intro. Uh, I'm a Screen Actors Guild member, so I've, I've done some work. Uh, doing mainly background work with occasional featured appearances in a few TV shows and movies. Uh, as you had already mentioned, I got my start mainly, I was a theater student at Montclair State University. Uh, I graduated from there back in 2012, which is 10 years ago now. Uh, time goes by too fast. Uh, but at that time, I was involved in the theater studies program uh, there was also a few different film projects that I was working on. So it was a combination of I was doing uh, theater and, and stage productions and improv classes. Uh, I had a few uh, like friends of mine who had written shows that I had performed in at that time uh, and throughout the city that performed at small stages. I'd say I was mainly more of a theater guy who mainly got interested in film and TV after school because that's where I kind of noticed where the money was at. Money wasn't really so much in stage as much as I think I prefer stage as an actor. Uh, a lot of the money was involved in commercial work, uh, doing film or TV shows. Uh, so once I graduated in 2012, uh, I mainly you know, got involved uh, through central casting was where I went to in New York. I showed up there 
uh, did a basic interview with one of the casting directors there. And I was on an email blast of lists for a number of months thereon uh, and just kept jumping on different projects right after I, I graduated school the summer of 2012. Uh, and it was a fun time, too, because I had a number of friends who had just graduated from college at that time. People who were not interested in acting at all, but I, I referred them to central casting. And they're like, Joe, I just got a part on Law and Order. I'm doing background today. Uh, thank you for setting me up. Uh, so I would set up a few of my friends who, again, had no interest in the business, but were just looking to get a check at that time. Uh, kind of you know, go off and maybe work on set of Law and Order or do some background work on a number of projects at that time. Very cool. Very cool. What were some of your favorite experiences that you had on uh, various TV shows or various? I think one of my earliest or, or one of my fa favorite experiences, I was working on a made for HBO movie. This was back, must have been around summer 2010. Uh, it was called Cinema Verte. So it was a made-for-HBO movie. Mm. Uh, it was starring Tim Robbins, James Gandolfini, and Diane Lane. Uh, cool. And uh, we, we had, like, kind of a rainy day on set. I was in a, a number of scenes that we were shooting outside of the Chelsea Hotel that day. Uh, rainy, kind of hot summer day. A lot of production pauses. Brent, I heard you talking yesterday in one of the uh, podcast ep episodes that you had done about working odd hours. Well, you know, you work like 16, 18 hour days on set. Uh, you can have a day that starts four o'clock in the afternoon and then ends at four in the morning. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it can be nonstop. Uh, but we're working through a rainstorm one day and I, I got to be in a scene with uh, Diane Lane and kind of stopped and, and talked with her and she was just kind of asking me how my day was going and, and catching up and, she was just such a genuine, like authentic person, like because a lot of times you could run into more Hollywood types on set. Maybe they're not the kindest or maybe they just kind of want to keep to themselves. Uh, but she just had this glowing, like, I just want to talk to other people and kind of get to know what you're up to uh, persona to her. And it was really nice to just kind of catch up with her and see how much of a kind of a regular person she was uh, to other actors on set. So uh, that was kind of my first kind of starstruck moment of working on set and maybe running into a celebrity. I was 19 or 20 at the time. Uh, and yeah, running, running into Diane Lane on set. That was, that was exciting. I did not get to meet James Gandolfini. He was, uh, working on set that night and he was coming in. James Gandolfini was notoriously, uh, late for showing up for shoots, uh, <laughs> when he filmed the Sopranos, that was something that was, he was notorious for. He didn't show up for days at a time. Um, but uh, he, I was hoping to be included in that shoot with him. I think even Diane Lane mentioned, where's Jimmy? He's not here. <laughs> um, he didn't end up showing up till set. Cause I remember sitting around, it was like two or two 30 in the morning, uh, sitting at the hotel Chelsea, uh, just kind of reading books and, shooting the shit with other cast members that night uh but yeah you meet a number of different characters working on set that was the first time i think i ever really got starstruck though uh working on set was was meeting diane lane and just seeing how glowing and how welcoming she was at that time wow that's cool what an amazing experience i never had to do the overnight i was an extra in two movies uh, and I remember having the 12 hour days, but I, yeah. I did not experience the 14 to 16 hour days, uh, like you did. 
Well, when you're waiting on James Gandolfini, you know, you might, you might be taking a while here. Right, right. And again, I, I, I was hoping that I got to meet him because I'm a, I'm a big fan, a huge fan of The Sopranos, uh, big fan of a number of uh, movies that he did. Uh, he unfortunately passed away about two, three summers after that summer uh, mm. that, I, that I've worked on set. But, um, and then, yeah, I, I mean, I've worked on a number of other films and TV shows and a couple other summers following that. Admission is the big one that everybody seems to be the talk of the town that people keep finding me in, <laughs> in various clips. Uh, that was directed by Paul Weitz, uh, was the director on that one. Uh, it was starring Tina Fey, Paul Rudd, and Michael Sheen. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be included in a few scenes with Paul Rudd and Tina Fey and interact with both of them on set. And uh, Seems like a good time. It was a good time. I mean, Paul Rudd in person is exactly how he is in the movies. He kind of carries himself the same way as you'd see him in Ant-Man or see him in any of his uh, other movies. He's a very outgoing guy, somebody who's going to, chat and want to talk up with the, with all the other actors maybe he was hitting on some 19 year old girl on the set at the time um but <laughs> uh, tina fey very dry funny sense of humor but likes to keep to herself she's much more bookish don't really ask tina about her time on saturday night live or 30 rock she's more interested in talking about what book she's reading or what she's writing on uh, yeah. takes her writing very seriously. You know, she's a writer, Tina. So usually when she's not sh filming in a set, she's either in her trailer reading or writing at the time. Oh. Uh, generally likes to keep to herself. Although she sneaks up on you. She snuck up on me. We had a blackout on set when we were filming admission and it was a power outage and I'm bumping around and I turn around and it's Tina Fey. And she's like, looks like it's time for everybody to turn around and make out. <laughs> I was like, who is I was like, hey Tina. <laughs> she was standing right next to me. Uh the pitch black. But um That's hilarious. So that oh. was a that was a funny moment. Yeah. <laughs> it makes yeah. me so happy to know that that is true. Uh that's the who you who you think she might be is who is who she is. Yeah, and she she won't appear to you in the daylight, but the soonest <laughs> that the lights go out, she'll just pop up out of out of nowhere. Uh, and surprise on you. Um, and then the director, Paul White. So he was a cool guy to work with. He has worked on a number of different movies. He, I think he did the American Pie films. Um, just somebody who was a, a, like a, a workhorse, but was, got along well with the other actors because sometimes directors don't really want to interact with the actors. Uh, and I mean, by actors, background actors, such as myself, of course, he'll be interacting with Paul or Tina on set. Someone like myself, whose background, maybe not as much, but he actually did like reach out and say, hey, I would want to include you in the shot. Hey, can you try standing over here this way? Hey, how's your day going? We've been here for a while yeah. <laughs> on those like 12 to 14 hour shoots. Um, but yeah, that I mean, those were probably two of my uh, bigger experiences there. Oh, wow. Well, thank you so much, Joe, for sharing that. I, and I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be a part of our podcast today. Of course. Hey. Could, I, could I also add one more thing too before yeah. we go? Even though like I've worked on it, you know, I'm only mentioning like the, the names and not like celebrity name dropping here. But honestly, like working on film, I'd say the most fun I've ever had working on film is the small, grainy, independent stuff where mm -hmm. it's 
it's a number of people who believe in a project. Uh, maybe you're not getting paid, uh, but maybe you really like the script and it's a fun horror movie and you're filming it like an abandoned house upstate New York with some geek who <laughs> takes his work so seriously. Uh, those are the projects that have actually most appealed to me and been the ones that I've had the most fun on. Oh, wow. Yeah. That really is representative of your true love for the film. And that's awesome. I mean, just to, to, to hear you say that really allows us to look at it from a different perspective, you know, because when I was in college and I was, uh, I, my major was in radio, TV, film, and there were guys that wanted to make films at that they were looking for people to kind of help. And, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to find somebody that wants to be <clears throat> a grip or, right. or work all of those crazy hours for, you know, nothing at all. Yep. And, um, and then there was, um, beyond those two um, movies that I was an extra in, there was a, a guy that I, I used to run the camera at the at one of the churches here in town in Texarkana and I met uh, some of the the folks that worked in there that volunteered in there and he actually made a short film here in Texarkana and it was it was great to be a part of it so I can kind of understand your love for it because it was kind of a a sci-fi thing and then we were there when it was really cold outside and dark and but he would get pizza and you know everything it was just that uh that uh, the group of people doing what they love, you know, is such an amazing thing. It's truly a group effort too, Brent. Uh, making a, a film on a, like a zero budget is you got to have people that believe in a project and everybody's got to contribute in some way. It truly is a team effort. You got to have the right writers. You got to have the right actors. You got to have the right director and you got to have a good script and everybody's kind of have to be on board so rare for that to happen that everybody's on it i mean i've even had independent works before where maybe the director has a creative crisis and they've already filmed 20 hours of film and then they step away from the project uh again wow. you got to yeah. be trusting of the people that you work with here and somebody like me as an actor i got to be choosy about who i choose to spend my time with <laughs> right make Absolutely. sure that they're not abandoning uh, like 10 hours of film work that i did with them because this happened to me <laughs> on a couple occasions oh man so. mm -hmm. wow that reminds me of something uh, did you ever see that uh, documentary about val kilmer that i haven't seen no uh, he was talking about an experience that he had with a certain movie and a certain director where something like that happened and it was so frustrating to mm -hmm. happen because you're dedicating your time and everything to it. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing that with us, Joe and um, folks out there in podcast land. I just want to share with you what our episode is today. Not only did we want to bring Joe on to talk about his experiences in the industry, but we also wanted to have him be a part of our normal production here. And so today's top uh, is uh, is an amazing topic that uh, that Tori came up with. Uh, Tori, do you want to elaborate on how you came up with this particular topic? The the reason, the way I came up with this idea, is um, there's an episode of How I Met Your Mother. Have you ever seen that show? Mm -hmm. Heard of it? All right. So there's an episode of How I Met Your Mother where they talk about like common sense gaps that you miss, like people where people. I think it was uh, on on the TV show one of the characters didn't know how to say chameleon because he had only read it he never pronounced it and um i remember this one time i was in a star i was in a starbucks 
at, um, I was in Florida at the time in a Starbucks and there was this couple there on a date and the guy, and they were talking about this episode and the guy was telling the girl that similar thing had happened to him where he had grown up his whole life thinking that Michigan was pronounced Michigan. And and he said it in school one time and everybody made fun of him. He was like in high school and everybody made fun of him. But anyway, I was thinking about like, there are these gaps of common knowledge that people have in real life. But then I feel like there's gaps like in the, in the movie canon or the cultural canon of like, there are all these movies that everybody has seen and everybody knows about, but then I'm like, well, I haven't seen that movie. (laughs) And so I just kind of pretend like I do. And, um, but I feel like this was like a chance to address, like, these are the, the movie common movie knowledge gaps that we can kind of like take the time to, to fill and explore. So that's how we got here today. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you, you always come up with some amazing ideas. Um, and, and I really appreciate that because you really put your heart into this and, and that's something that, uh, our listeners can really enjoy. Um, moving right along, I will go to uh, my classic that I had never seen. And uh, this is something that I'd seen other versions of it, but I hadn't seen this this classic. This is something that had kind of a, um, uh, what do they call it these days? A kind of a, a redo or a, a reboot? A reboot, yeah. It kind of had a reboot, right? But I wanted to see the original, and so when I was looking up classics, uh, I thought, man, this is it right here. And this is none other than... Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde is a 1967 crime drama written by David Newman and Robert Benton. It's loosely based on the early to mid-30s crime spree of the Barrow Gang. Now, the film was directed by Arthur Penn. It stars Warren Beatty, who also produced it, and Faye Dunaway, also co-starring Gene Hackman, Estelle Parsons, and Michael J. Pollard. All five of these actors were nominated for Oscars, with Parsons winning. Now, the film scored very badly on its first release because most audiences were disgusted with the excess violence. But over time, it has become a true classic to the point where Quentin Tarantino said film history can be divided into films made before and after Bonnie and Clyde. Now, what I mean by that is that the cinema of the 70s started with this late 60s movie. In the beginning of this movie, we see black and white pictures of Bonnie, Clyde, and others during the opening credits, establishing a photograph motif symbolizing the fixed image, the idealized myth of the Bureau Gang, as opposed to who they really were. Now, this contrast between what we call the ideal and the real is reinforced immediately after the opening scene, with Faye Dunaway playing Bonnie Parker, shown naked in her bedroom, looking at herself in the mirror. Now, they use something called Lakin's mirror in this example, and this is where we have the contrast between the idealized mirror reflection, her ideal self, basically what she sees herself to be, and the woman looking at it, which is her real self, who feels lacking and fragmented and discontent with her life. 
Now, the jump cuts in the scene are deliberate. It's choppy editing to symbolize her fragmentation. The shot of her lying on her bed with her head between the bars of the head of her bed, it makes her look imprisoned. And she bangs her fists in frustration on the bars like a prisoner wanting to be free. See, the thing is, she has a job as a waitress, but she wants more out of life. And she looks out that window and she sees Clyde trying to steal her mom's car. And her choice of words to address him is pretty significant. She calls out, Hey, boy! Now she's up there calling down to him from the second floor, addressing the young man as boy. Now, this moment introduces another theme of the movie, which is the reversal of sex roles. This role reversal symbolizes a movement towards the equality of sex, which is a necessary part of the time frame that this movie took place in where there needed to be equality between men and women. Now, Bonnie quickly gets dressed and goes down to meet Clyde. They walk together, they buy bottles of Coca-Cola, and then all heck breaks loose. This is when all the sexual innuendo begins to start, right? We see her with her lips around the top of the bottle, drinking in a way suggestive of sexual tones. Bonnie is skeptical of Clyde's claim to be a thief until he pulls out his pistol, but then he lowers it to his groin area, giving the gun another representation of sexual tones. Now the innuendo continues when she touches his gun and moves her hand up and down the gun. Now. This is giving even more sexual tones. Now, Clyde goes off and robs a store, firing his gun as he and Bonnie race off in the car. And Bonnie is so thrilled with his daring achievements that she just wants to make love to him. Now they pull over by some trees in the woods and she jumps on him and she covers his face with kisses. Now here we have another reversal of the sex roles. She is the sexual aggressor not him. In fact, the reversal is carried even further when he has to fight her off. And then later, we learn that the reason why he fought her off is because he's not a good lover. He's impotent. Now later, Clyde attempts a robbery of a small bank, and that bank has gone out of business and it lost all of its money due to the depression. And when Bonnie finds out about this, she makes fun of Clyde. She laughs at him and they hurry away in the car. Now, Clyde's embarrassment is another symbolic emasculation. It's lowering him from the unattainable male chauvinistic ideal, showing him to be more of her equal. And they begin to build up the Bureau gang by adding C.W. Moss as their getaway driver. And then Moss demonstrates his uncle. Uh, his incompetence by parking their getaway car where Bonnie and Clyde can't find it. And once again, showing the myth of male superiority, but also showing Bonnie to be their equal. You see, Bonnie is seen as a feminist icon in the film. Now, another reversal of sex roles happens when Clyde takes that famous photograph of Bonnie with his cigar in her mouth and his gun in her hand, and she's shown leaning against the car. Now, the gun and the cigar make her into this idealized, strong version of herself, making the photo comparable to the ideal self that she saw in her mirror reflection 
at the beginning of the film. Now that photo may have made her look like a cigar-chomping, gun-brandishing gun brandishing lady, but the real Bonnie wasn't as tough as all that. The Barrow Gang needs a new car after the bank robbery, so they steal one owned by Eugene Grizzard, played by none other than the original Willy Wonka, Gene Wilder. Man, amazing. The Barrow Gang chases after, catches them, kidnaps Eugene and his girlfriend Velma, and at first, they're friendly with the two, telling jokes, this, that, and the other, but then, guess what happens? Bonnie asks Eugene what he does for a living, and he says that he is a undertaker. Whoa, this is foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the future, and it freaks Bonnie out, right? She gets apprehensive, and she insists on kicking them out of the car. She's scared, and she's craving a reunion with her mom. So Bonnie runs off. The gang finds her, and they agree to visit her mom and her family. Now, this visit, we see a lot of her mother's fear for Bonnie having all of this risk involved and doing all of these bad things and doesn't want her to be close to her. She, at one point she says, if you stay here, you're going to be less than a mile away and the cops are going to find you. Now, Clyde tries to reassure Bonnie's mother that he'll find legitimate work as soon as the depression is over. Now, the, the gang finds another temporary hideout, another shootout occurs, and they escape, leaving Buck with a gunshot wound to the head and Blanche with a bullet breaking the car window and blinding her in the left eye. They camp somewhere in the woods, but the cops find them. Another shootout happens with the death of Buck and the arrest of the grieving and hysterical Blanche. Now, both Bonnie and Clyde have been shot in the arm, but they get away with Moss. Moss drives them to his father's house, Ivan Moss, played by Dub Taylor. And Ivan is furious. He finds out that his son has gotten this tattoo on his chest. And the tattoo represents love suggestive of the hippies. And Ivan is so disapproving of it. And he's just, this shows the conservative parents of that later decade. The, the conflict between father and son is a reflection of the generation gap of the late 60s. Now, what we find is that Ivan has a secret plan for Bonnie and Clyde. Smiling Ivan, as we call him, always pretending to be a great friend, to be hospitable to Bonnie and Clyde. He's got this secret plan in place. And later, we see Clyde, who is wearing sunglasses, but they had the left eyeglass broken out. Now, this is symbolic of his inability to see straight, and therefore, he's unable to anticipate the danger that he and Bonnie are about to encounter. As they're approaching the trap, Bonnie gets a pear and eats it, sharing it with Clyde. They look like Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit, making themselves vulnerable to the fate they're about to find. Ivan slips under his truck for safety, and then we see a flock of birds fly out from the bushes where Hammer's armed men are hiding. These birds are a bad omen, but the warning is too late for Bonnie and Clyde. The jump cuts in the film show the two lovers looking around in suspicion, then at each other one last time as they resign themselves to their fate. This scene showing them looking into each other's eyes is a mirroring of their love for each other, paralleling Bonnie's looking into her mirror reflection at the beginning of the movie. 
in their love, they see themselves in each other. The bullets fly out. The two lie there dead. It's a physical fragmentation to complement their psychological fragmentation at the start of the film. Hammer and his posse emerge from the bushes and they look at their bloody work. We see Hammer's men through the bullet-riddled glass of Clyde's car, glass which gives some reflection of the trees behind it, reminding us of Bonnie's mirror from the beginning scene. This film extends the window metaphor to our eyes as they have often been likened to the windows of the soul. In the first part of the film, we see the shooting near the eyes of the bank guard. This shows how Clyde's vision for their future is not clear as to the consequences of his actions. Their self-delusion is symbolized early in the film when they hide from the police in a movie theater and the musical number, We're in the money, we're in the money, is playing. This scene, it shows us the audience uh, how we, we try not to see the reality of our situations. We go to the movies to escape, to get into some fantasy world. Now, Clyde's shooting of the bank guard comes back to haunt the gang as Buck is killed by a gunshot to this head. Oh, his eyes are seen as bloody, clouding his vision, and Blanche is wounded in the eyes. Her eyes are bandaged. It's blocking out her actual sight not to mention her moral insight when she reveals the identity of C.W. Moss, which allows the authorities to track down Bonnie and Clyde. Here, the human windows, the eyes, are broken and mirror the destruction of the criminal family, which was doomed from the start due to their lack of clear thinking. Even when we're being seduced into the bank robber's world, there are several foreshadowings of how the path they have chosen will not be a happy one. Guys, I have to ask, did you have you seen this film yet? And if you did, what did you think of it? I have not seen this film. Yeah, I have I have yet to see Bonnie and Clyde either. Wow. It's, it's something like it's one of those things where you you see I I mean I know of it obviously. I was actually going to ask you Brent if you why why like why was this the movie that you picked? Um cuz I mean I like I've heard of it. I I don't think I I would have been on a list of like even tw- even like 20 movies that I was considering. Um I like that you picked it. I'm just curious like what what uh had attracted you to it well you know i had thought about many different movies that i hadn't seen and then i uh i happened to be on vacation um in orlando and i was uh i knew that we had this episode coming up and so i started doing some research on some classics and as i was going through them i was i was shocked at myself when i hadn't seen this movie you know (laughs) Like I said, I had seen the uh, the redo of it, right? But I hadn't seen the original. And I thought, what? You know, and then I thought, Warren Beatty's in here. Gene Hackman's in here, you know? <clears throat> and then and then I, I saw that it was on HBO. And I happened to have HBO on my app, on my phone. And so it took me about three days to watch it. <laughs> yeah. Because, we, you know, like I say... I was trying to watch it uh, when, you know, when uh, when we weren't doing family fun vacations. Right. But um, but that's kind of why I chose it. I was just surprised at myself. I couldn't believe that I hadn't seen the original. And I was like, crazy. So that's why I chose it. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I think it's cool, too, because this is like 
uh, this is what my dad would call a shoot 'em up bang bang movie, and mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and maybe one that's like not super historically accurate, but like hearing you describe it, I'm I'm very impressed by um, just like the the artfulness and the imagery of it, um, and even just its relevancy in the culture at the time and, and the way, you know, the way it told its story. So I'm excited to see it now. Thanks so much for letting me share. And I think we're next going to move on to Joe. Joe, what amazing film have you selected for us? So I, I came in with one that I haven't outright seen, and that's going to be my homework for today is to actually watch, uh, well, first of all, Bonnie and Clyde, but second of all, uh, the one that I originally picked because I thought it was movies that we haven't seen at all, which I came in with Rear Window, uh, Jimmy Stewart, uh, directed by Hitchcock. Uh, that's one I've been wanting to see, especially as I'm sitting at my desk in my apartment, looking at this new apartment building that's been built across the street and just kind of seeing everything that's going on in there. Kind of feel like Jimmy Stewart and Rear Window. Not that I've seen that movie yet, but I, I feel like I'm living it at times. <laughs> so, uh, but I'd say the, the other classic movie that I've seen most recently after one of my friends was pushing me to, to watch it. It's a long one. It's a doozy. It was definitely worth my time. Uh, it's Apocalypse Now. And I watched the Redux version, which runs uh, well over three hours. Uh, so it's definitely not a short film. Uh, definitely make sure you, you have like a rainy Sunday or something set up uh, for this one. Uh, this was one of those movies that I, I couldn't believe that I had been sitting on for as long as I did. I've, I've seen a number of Vietnam movies before. Um, Full Metal Jacket, I've seen countless of times. Uh, Platoon. Uh, but for whatever reason, I had waited on this one. Uh, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Came out, I believe it was 1979. Uh, and starring... Uh, Marlon Brando, Robert Duvall, uh, and of course, Martin Sheen is the main character, and uh, young Lawrence Fishburne is in there too. Um, I mean, what a incredibly powerful film, uh, making this statement about just the, the chaos and the moral ambiguity of war, especially during the, the Vietnam War, and uh, absolutely haunting performance from Marlon Brando as mm. Captain Wirtz at the end. Um, I mean, it opens up uh, Martin Sheen being the main character of the movie. Uh, he gets assigned a uh, project to be an assassin uh, to go take out this general, uh, the general being General Kurtz, who's played by Marlon Brando. Uh, it's reported that Kurtz uh, has gone missing in the uh, jungles of Cambodia uh, and there's been reports back from other soldiers that he has possibly uh, gone rogue um, and, and that his methods have kind of overtaken him and he's, he's gone mad. Uh, so he, Martin Sheen, is sent on a mission to go assassinate this general deep in the jungle. Uh, along the way, uh, Martin Sheen runs into a number of different moral dilemmas and moral questions. Uh, he meets Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall has an excellent performance where he plays, uh, he is General uh, Kilgore, uh, who he has the opening line of when Martin Sheen's character first meets him. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Uh, when Martin Sheen's character first meets him, 
there's a bombing going on in the jungle of Vietnam. And it, it looks like this giant like news press. Uh, you have the media all over the place there. And uh, it's almost looking like a giant photo shoot, almost like something you'd see uh, to be posted for social media today. But at that time being posted for the magazines, the news networks, and you just see Martin Sheen's just confused why the, uh, this general uh, who's Kilgore again, being played uh, by Robert Duvall, he's going out surfing while they're dropping bombs on the whole jungle over there. Uh, it's the first moment in the movie where Martin Sheen really starts to question the overall kind of moral ambiguities of the Vietnam War. Uh, he goes deeper and deeper with a small uh, brigade of soldiers into the jungle to go to Cambodia to find Marlon Brando. Uh, as he goes deeper and deeper, the soldiers kind of that he's with and his crew each descends into madness in some shape or form. Yeah. Uh, as they're descending into this madness, uh, Martin Sheen is reading about the general played by Mar Marlon Brando. Uh, and he's, he's kind of reading his, his methods. And it, it turns out that he was this brilliant general. Uh, and he's trying to figure out like what could have possibly have gone wrong because he's seeing all these excesses and abuse of, abuses of power surrounding himself in the war as he goes deeper into the jungle. Uh, he sees incompetent soldiers along the way. He sees generals like uh, Robert Duvall's character, a, an incompetent general who's surfing uh, while they're dropping bombs in the jungle. Uh, meanwhile, while he's reading about uh, the Marlon Brando character, General Kurtz, he's realizing General Kurtz is this competent general uh, who, who kind of, adheres to respect and these old world ways. Um, and he's just kind of questioning how he could have gone mad. Uh, but as he's questioning, as he's gone mad, he sees that the madness is all around him. Uh, the movie is based off of a novel uh, called the, uh, I think it was called the Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Uh, uh, yeah, it was a modernization of Heart of Darkness. Uh, which I did not know by that. Joseph Conrad. Uh, that was about colonial, uh, it was like colonialism in Africa. Uh, and it just kind of set, Francis Ford Coppola had set the novel to be the backdrop of the Vietnam War. It had kind of mod did a modern take uh, of Heart of Darkness and just kind of exploring all these moral ambiguities of the Vietnam War. But essentially it's Martin Sheen's character uh, sees just general waste and incompetence all around him. Uh, incompetent soldiers uh, who are just shooting at civilians without cause, uh, who are losing their minds. And he's starting to wonder, like, maybe this General Marlon Brando, maybe he's not the crazy one after all. Maybe he was the competent guy this whole time. And maybe just everything around him has gone to shit, so to speak. Uh, but there's an ultimate confrontation at the end. Uh, where Martin Sheen finally gets to the end of the Cambodian jungle and he gets to this giant temple where Marlon Brando's character, the general, has been hiding out. Uh, and it's just this haunting, stunning scene. And then Dennis Hopper pops out of nowhere uh, just as a war photographer uh, journalist who has become a disciple of Marlon Brando's character. Uh, Marlon Brando's character has become this poet warrior who has shaved his head off uh, and is 
kind of living in a, a, a cloak or a muumu. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you, you just see around him, though, that he has obviously descended into some form of madness. Uh, but even as he's descended in some form of madness, he keeps this level of calm. Uh, I don't want to give away too, too much of the ending for those of you who haven't seen it. I don't know if either of you have ever seen this one, uh, but I definitely, definitely recommend it. Have either of you ever had the chance to watch it? I I've, haven't seen I've, it. I've seen parts of it. <clears throat> um, I, haven't, I haven't watched the whole thing. You know? It sounds chilling. I want to see it now. Really, <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it was it was a life changing uh, movie. One of my friends, I told you, had watched it, and I I sat down and I just, even though it's a long one, especially if you watch the Redux version, I recommend watching the Redux version. You can always watch it in two different parts and split it up that way. The mm -hmm. Redux version is interesting because they show the French side of the Vietnam War because prior to the, the, the American Vietnam War, uh, it was a French colonial state, Vietnam. Uh, the French have an entirely different perspective of the war and of the Vietnam, Vietnamese people uh, that seems to go past the understanding of many of the American generals, uh, which was interesting. It was very interesting to see how Francis Ford Coppola covered the French army and the French occupation in that movie as well. That is only, that's a scene that's only included in the Redux version, which is why I say watch the Redux version, just to get the French colonial perspective of the Vietnam War. Very wow. cool. Amazing. And you know what's even more amazing is that I thought you were going to do Rear Window, and all of a sudden you come up with this information on Apocalypse <laughs> Now, and I'm like, man, Joe can really spin on a dime. How in the world? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> hey, it's uh, a few years of improv classes. I mean, that'll, that'll uh, maybe have to spin on the time a little bit here. So. Awesome. And Tori, uh, your have not seen now is one of my favorite movies of all time, also on my top 10. Uh, maybe you can go ahead and share uh, what you saw. Oh, well, thanks for, thanks for setting me up. Yes, this has been a long time coming. Um, I'm very excited to talk about the movie Jaws. Yes. Uh, I have been wanting to see this for a long time. Actually, my, my eight-year-old uh, <laughs> cousin <laughs> is, really wanted to see Jaws, but his mom said no. Um, and what he was talking about that last time I was in Florida, and I was like, I haven't even seen Jaws. So that kind of lit a fire under me. Um, but yes, Jaws is like, one of one of the most classic American films ever made um, came out in the year 1975. Um, and I was like, I can't go on hosting a movie podcast and calling myself a film buff if I've never seen this movie. Um, you can't. That, yeah. that said, like, I like one, like I can kind of take or leave horror movies um, or scary movies, I guess. And the, the whole like man versus nature genre doesn't always do it for me. So um, I think maybe that's why I never really got pushed to, to see it. Um, but I ended up seeing it. I actually went down to my local like old timey movie theater downtown on a Monday night for $5 and saw it. So it was excellent experience. And I really enjoyed it. And it is actually kind of scary, but like in a fun way. Um, and doing some research, I learned that the movie actually... Uh, there's actually a reported case of a 17-year-old girl back in the 70s uh, who was diagnosed with uh, cinematic neuroses, um, which basically means that the movie caused or exacerbated um, uh, health dis mental health disturbances like anxiety, nightmares, convulsions, all that uh, for her. Um, and then it became a case study for the medical community to, to study the connection between 
movies and um, mental health and anxiety and, and uh, stress and all that. Um, another movie that did that is The Exorcist, which I think makes sense. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it wasn't um, wasn't that scary. <laughs> um, and you know, just a summary of the plot. Every you you all you all know the plot. Shark attacks are happening. These guys go out to kill the shark, and it's a test of you know test of their their bravery and strength to try and kill the shark and save the community um i was in the beginning when they're when they're learnt when the community is kind of discussing the shark attacks and what to do about it and the marriage pushing back on the like the cost of losing the tourism of the summer um i was like wow this sounds exactly like (laughs) like social commentary now every time there's a crisis people come and some people want to some people are on one end where they're like, shut it down, everyone panic, and other people are like, pretend nothing is wrong oh, because Tori, we don't I was, lose any money. <laughs> I was joking with my friends the other summer. I was like, the mayor from Jaws is working overtime these days. He's <laughs> everywhere. Oh, yeah. He's he's covering up a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's covering up a lot of properties in Atlantic City right now that are about to go underwater that he keeps saying, no, it's fine. Keep buying property here. yeah but i don't know how that made me like it it made me feel good that this has been going on for a long time or i don't know but it did make me feel like less like we're not living in such a crisis situation like this stuff happens all the time (laughs) so uh, um but i will say so the thing about this movie is that really makes it is is the music um so the movie is, is scored by john williams um and um directed by Steven Spielberg and the two of them had actually worked together a year prior on a movie called the Sugarland Express and Steven Spielberg really wanted John Williams to work with him on Jaws um, but John Williams almost didn't do it because his wife had died the year before and he was like so depressed didn't want to work and Steven Spielberg was like you know pestering him and, and just like kept reaching out to him kept reaching out to him like I need you on this movie um, he finally gave in and even Steven Spielberg credits most of the success uh, of this movie um, to John Williams and the score. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and he actually ended up winning um, John Williams one best original score for this movie in um, 1975. Uh, but he was so at the at the Oscar ceremony, he was directing the orchestra and then he had and then he he got called because he won the award. And he stopped, he had to stop. (laughs) He like left the orchestra playing on their own, ran up and grabbed the the award and then came back down to the pit and and kept conducting, uh, which I thought was kind of a funny story. Wow. Um, That's amazing. um, But then the two of them, so um, John Williams and Steven Spielberg went on uh, to work together on several movies, including Indiana Jones movies, E.T., Hook, Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, Saving Private Ryan, Lincoln, and then even this year's uh, West Side Story they worked together on, which is pretty cool. Um, and then, uh, so, and then also back in the day, so Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, um, they were all friends and kind of worked together and collaborated together. And Steven Spielberg recommended John Williams to George Lucas, and uh, John Williams ended up doing the score for all all of the star wars movies um so that's pretty cool too so basically like every good epic movie you've seen <laughs> john williams has probably written the score for it uh, <laughs> um so yeah big career maker for both steven spielberg and john williams um 
another interesting thing about this movie is that it kind of set a precedent um, for the summer blockbuster and what that could be. That wasn't really a thing before 1975. Um, It also was not, it was an accident. (laughs) um, So this like, so Jaws is a hugely successful movie, huge endeavor, um, big money maker, but it was never, no, obviously no one, you can't plan for it to be that successful. Um, so it was kind of supposed to be a smaller movie. Um, but Steven Spielberg had these grand plans for it. I think it was supposed to be three months long of shoot three to four months of shooting. Um, and he ended up going three to four times over the budget and three, about three times over the schedule. So, um, it's a miracle that he didn't get fired. <laughs> well, the shark broke. Uh, the, the shark broke on set. And it actually made the movie better. Because <laughs> it did. Because if you think about horror, right? The, the, the things that terrify people most are those that we cannot see. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the shark is always lingering. And you know that it's out there and it's in the water. But you don't see it. I mean, I, I can't like go to a beach now without thinking that there's going to be some kind of shark in the water that you can't see because you can't actually see a shark when you're swimming in the water yeah yeah no you're absolutely right and that was a big problem because steven spielberg pushed so hard for the producers to make him a mechanical shark and i think they made three of them for him and he was like we can't use a real shark it's not going to work we need a mechanical (laughs) shark and so they like spent all this money and then the sharks didn't even, they didn't look realistic. They didn't work. They didn't do what they wanted it to do. Um, and yeah, so, yeah. So it sort of was a happy accident that it happened that way, but that definitely was not the plan. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the movie was supposed to come out at Christmas, ended up coming out, um, I think June of 1975. Um, and then became, you know, at that time, one of the most successful movies ever made. Um, and then, you know, the first summer blockbuster. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And Robert Shaw in that movie as, as Quinn. Yeah. Uh, the old salt, the old fisherman. <laughs> he is so good as, as uh, Quinn in that movie. Uh, that, that movie I, I've loved and it's always been a big part of my life because I, I grew up going to Montauk in the summers. Uh, yeah. Old fishing community. Fortunately, a lot of that has kind of brushed over. There's still remnants of it, but you get a lot of these old fishermen on the docks. My, my father would take me fishing out of the docks. And you would see a lot of these old uh, real-life quints who, who lived there and would go shark fishing uh, out at the end of Long Island. Uh, but it is uh, such a great movie. Roy Schneider as the, as the cop and uh, Richard mm-hmm. Dreyfuss as the researcher. You have the, there's a split down in that movie philosophically because you have the scientist Mm-hmm. The cop who's supposed to be the protector, and you have the uh, kind of uh, fantastical poet who is Quinn, <laughs> the fisherman, yeah. the, the wild card. So you have the three, the philosophical difference between those three characters is what also makes that such a, a unique movie, too. Yeah. Yeah, wow. absolutely. I, I love when they're together on the boat for days, hours, days, and they're drinking, and they, they all, they all, have their weaknesses and then yes, they, they also strengths and weaknesses yeah, yeah. They, they need each other though yeah uh to in order to, to hunt the shark because they they all have their their certain strengths and they kind of have to all have to work out uh off of each other yeah and i, lo- I love that scene when uh 
they're Quentin, um, uh, I forget his name, the oceanographer are like showing each other their scars and they, yeah. <laughs> and they feel like they're so opposite, but then they realize like, Oh, we actually, we have a lot in common. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, I am absolutely amazed at, I mean, look at the secret superpower that Joe's been having this whole time and he hasn't even <laughs> <laughs> this long to be a part of our podcast. <laughs> yeah. The oh, nat- but, to, but to Joe's point, um, it, it did scare a lot of people at the beach in 1975 reduced beach attendance um, across the United States and increase in the number of shark sightings um, acro- across the board. So everybody was like thinking about sharks <laughs> and afraid yeah. to go to the beach. <laughs> I'm still thinking about sharks. There was just that shark attack in Australia last week. Great white shark bit, uh, killed the swimmer the other week. Yeah. Uh, but they're rare, but, but Jaws, I think, elevated this fear into the consciousness mm-hmm. of, of everybody. And again, the fact that it's mostly, when you see the shark, it's just a camera shot of the, the open water. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's, to me, what makes that movie still terrifying. Because if we, if we in 2022 were just looking at an animatronic shark built in 1975, we'd probably be like, oh, this is so corny. You know, this yeah. is, you know. But the, the fact that we can't see it actually works in the benefit of the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then just one more thing that I learned about this movie. Um, do you guys know Jaws is based on a book? Yeah. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> what was it Peter Benchley, I think, wrote the book? <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure um, who wrote the novel, um, but I kind of want to read it now because if a book is scary, it's usually really good. Um, yeah. but, but Steven Spielberg said that when he read the novel he was actually rooting for the shark because he felt like the cute human characters were so unlikable. And I mean, I kind of get that. I thought Richard Dreyfuss's character is kind of annoying. <laughs> I was like, I kind of hope this guy gets eaten by a shark at the end. <laughs> but, um, but overall, very enjoyable. Happy to have, have the knowledge now. If you guys haven't, anybody out there hasn't seen Jaws, highly recommend it. <laughs> but yeah wow what an amazing episode this has been so much fun joe thank you so much for joining us absolutely thank you guys for having me doing that and um now um looking at our calendar here we've got um tori correct me if i'm wrong but it looks like the next episode which would be episode number eight which is going to be in early march we're going to do some St. Patrick Day recommendations. That's right. And uh, I'm excited to, uh, to, to do that particular episode. Um, I think uh, I shared that information with, with Joe, and I think he's got some amazing selections there. And uh, we'll see if he has time to, to join us again, you know, because it's been, man, it's been mind-blowing having you on, Joe. It's just been <laughs> Thank so you. fun. It's, 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 uh, it's just got a smile. If you could see our, our zoom right now, you could see everybody's smiling and it's just, it's just so much fun to get together with friends and talk about movies. And that's what this podcast is all about. So I know that we're kind of on uh, limited time today. Uh, but I, again, thank you so much, Joe. And thank you, Tori. Thank you guys. Thank you guys out there listening to pitching popcorn. And we look forward to bringing you another episode in early March. Sounds Anything great. Anything else we have for him today, Tori? Uh, one more thing. Don't forget to put some butter on it.
Thanks for listening to Pitchin' Popcorn with Brent and Tori. We'll see you next time.